0: Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, experiences, reflections, and ideas that never quite get represented in this way in the academic conferences or publications. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University. I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders, and I'm pleased to be collaborating with many eating disorder community groups and organizations on this series. Our goal is to weave together the narrative history of eating disorders through the stories of researchers, clinicians, and individuals with lived experience. We hope our conversations will bring insights and guidance that will inspire new and next generations of leaders in the field. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Marcia Marcus. Dr. Marcus is Professor Emerita in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. She is past president of both the Academy for Eating Disorders and the Eating Disorders Research Society. She's been recognized with a number of awards over her career, including the American Psychological Association, Society of Clinical Psychology, Outstanding Clinical Educator Award, Uh, the American Psychologist Association, Clinical Psychology of Women Mentoring Award, and from the Academy for Eating Disorders Leadership Award and Lifetime Achievement Award. Marcia, you have contributed so much to this field. We're thrilled to have you here today. So let's start at the beginning and share with us a little bit about your growing up years. And when did you know that you were going to be a psychologist?
1: I was born in a very interesting but innocent time in this country, the years post-World War II, when we were very optimistic that World War II would have been the last war and that all things were possible. I uh, was born a twin. Uh, My sister and I were my parents' only children, and we grew up in Rochester, New York, Um, we went to a suburban high school uh, that lacked uh, most kinds of diversity. It was uh, a very innocent time. And I don't know that we gave much thought to the fact that we lived in a cocoon. That but that awareness did come later. Um, I think I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be either a doctor or a psychotherapist or a psychologist, uh, probably because I was a fairly intense kid and was always very curious about things that went wrong with people. And I had quite a bit of mental illness in my family. When I got to college, I sort of just knew I would major in psychology. I did and I never really looked back. Mm -hmm. But things changed Mm -hmm. when I was in college. When I started college, Women had to be back in their dorms at nine o'clock on weeknights. We did not have the same freedom of movement or sense of limitless possibility that I hope young women have now. Uh, If you were daring, uh, you would say you were going to be a nurse or a social worker or a teacher. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that was because... Uh, these were easier to manage when you had a family. Never mm-hmm. made, I, I, you know, someone, I got married very young too. Someone asked me, uh, what were you thinking? And I said, I'm not sure I had a thought until I was about 25. But at any rate, <laughs> by, by the time I left college, the woman. said where did you
0: go, Marcia? Syracuse, where did you go to school? Syracuse University. You went to Syracuse University in New York. Yeah. Um, Syracuse is a big school.
1: It's, I think, medium big. It's not big by University of Michigan or uh, Ohio State or even Penn State main campus standards, but I think it had about 8,000 undergraduates. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: And when uh, I finished my undergraduate degree... I made plans to go to the University of Pittsburgh to train as a professional social worker. Um, I'd gotten a a fellowship because Lyndon Johnson's Great Society legislation required training so many professional social workers in order to participate in the war on poverty which by the way, we deeply believed we would win. So I went from this kind of very sheltered background into the School of Social Work, where of course I met people of different ages, backgrounds, perspective, training, and became intimately acquainted with social determinants of health,
2: Mm -hmm. which is
1: a buzzword now, but I don't think it's news to social workers
0: right right uh, so you're in you're doing your graduate work in social work yeah you go from the cocoon that you describe yeah. as a child mm-hmm. to a world where you've got an enormous explosion of diversity what what stands out all these years as you look back now in terms of surprises or things that you remember learning for the first time as a young adult?
1: I think it was all a surprise to me. First of all, I was only 20 years old when I got married and started graduate school. And um, it was joyful, but it was also kind of a, a rude awakening to realities in the world, particularly in
0: that time
1: of the Vietnam
0: War. Mm-hmm. So in your social work training... Yeah what were the areas that you focused on and how did you get from social work training to clinical practice and eating disorders?
1: About 10 years after I finished social work school and working as a psychotherapist, I knew I wanted to get more training. And um, I began a PhD program in clinical psychology at the University of Pittsburgh in 1978. I was the only married person and I was the only parent in, in the huh. group. Uh, you know, I wasn't really that old. I was in my early 30s, but um I was very different than anyone else. And I was yeah. very serious about uh-huh. uh pursuing a research career,
0: uh-huh. which I then did. So who did you study with at University of Pittsburgh?
1: Well, it wasn't long after I started school that I started working with Rena Wang, who is now a very distinguished investigator and professor at Brown University. Um, She is one of the preeminent behavioral weight control obesity research in the country. We were neighbors. Mm -hmm. and age mates. But of course, she had 10 or 12 years on me professionally. She was a wonderful mentor. And I went to work learning about obesity, diabetes, and behavioral weight management. Mm -hmm. And my career in eating disorders started then.
0: Tell us how you got from obesity, diabetes, and behavioral weight management to eating disorders.
1: Well, I I noticed that many of the participants in Dr. Wing's research studies had aberrant eating patterns. uh, What I recognized then, and we all would know now as binge eating.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And um, although binge eating was not an unknown phenomenon, there had not been a lot of work that uh, appeared in the years since the uh, late, great Dr. Mickey Stunkard first Mm -hmm. identified binge eating as a distinct pattern among individuals with obesity. There
0: were a few articles. Can Can we put some punctuation on that? Because today it's probably difficult for people to imagine that within the field of eating disorders, binge eating was not recognized But what you're describing is actually the beginning of formally seeing what was right in front of us all along.
1: Yes, I began to notice a pattern that we recognize now as binge eating, recognized it then too, but Mm -hmm. didn't talk that much about it uh, among some of the participants in the behavioral
0: weight management program. Within the obesity field, did it matter that there were different patterns, behavioral patterns of eating? In other words, did the the field, the, the leaders in the obesity world, did, did they pay attention to those different patterns in terms of trying to understand etiology or maintenance, or was it somewhat Irrelevant to the work that was going on at the time?
1: I wouldn't say it was irrelevant. And I certainly was not the first person to describe it, but I would say it was not an area of insta- intense research focus.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: mm-hmm. you know, in a way, uh, although there, I can make no claims to being first, certainly the work I did to first describe and then treat binge eating among individuals with obesity um, was part of what I would observe now is an evolving picture of disordered eating across Mm -hmm. different individuals of varying body sizes, genders, races, ethnicities. But then we had anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and its variants, and little attention to patterns of aberrant eating among individuals who had overweight or obesity.
0: Mm -hmm. So you that takes us really to your big idea, right? In terms of the need to identify, describe, and develop Uh, specific interventions around the behavioral disturbances that you were seeing that started with people who were obese. Tell us a little bit more about this the heart of this work that you did that was really foundational in terms of binge eating disorder.
1: Well, this was pre-binge eating disorders day, but not by that much. So I did my dissertation looking at the differences between folks in Rena's programs who did and did not have a pattern of binge eating and looked at their responses to a behavioral weight management program um, and to two different uh, variations of a diet. One that emphasized the intake of complex carbohydrates, which kind of went by the wayside. But the findings of my dissertation, which uh, were published in um, the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychologists, showed that there were marked differences between those with and without binge eating, but that by the end of a year, there were no differences in weight loss.
2: Hmm.
1: And this is an issue, by the way, that reverberates to this day and there are efforts now to do things like meta-analyses and taking closer look at whether people with and without these patterns do differ in response to weight control but i can tell you that the the work of my dissertation um and then quickly of others okay Mm -hmm. Other, this is this is what's exciting and fun. Others join the party very quickly or they're right. working on it at the same time, but okay. you don't know it. You know, I'm sure those of us who have been around for the, a while all notice that ideas seem to rise to the surface around the same time, yeah. right? That's um, right. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, the forces and uh, the incremental and... Uh, how facts accrete. But after that dissertation and paper and one that shortly, that followed shortly thereafter that looked at the response of binge eaters and those without binge eating to fluoxetine or or prostac, got me a ticket to the table Mm -hmm. when there was a group of people convened by the the late psychiatrist uh, Bob Spitzer Mm -hmm. to say, okay, what is this binge eating? And to develop and test provisional criteria for a new disorder, Mm -hmm. uh, binge eating disorder that was characterized by binge eating much in the same way that one would see it in bulimia nervosa, but
0: without the regular use of compensatory behaviors. Bob Spitzer, just uh, putting this in context, this is in, in relation to the work that he was leading for the development of the dsm four. It was prior to the dsm four, but of course,
1: then the provisional criteria were included, in mm-hmm. the DSM, after the field studies, the uh-huh. provisional... Um, he became interested in binge eating, by the way, because of a colleague who had mm-hmm. the problem.
0: So Marsha, Bob Spitzer is intrigued by this behavioral phenomenon of binge eating. He assembles people who are beginning to contribute to the
1: description yeah. Yeah. of this yeah.
0: syndrome what did it take to get to? Not a lot. He, I, I mean, I was,
1: uh, figuratively and literally a kid, Uh but he, uh, was able to move mountains with his Uh names, his contacts and his intellectual heft. Uh And, um, folks from New York state, Psychiatric Bob Spitzer and Debbie Hassan, who was in, I think the school of public health mm-hmm. and Tom Wadden, a very, very well-known obesity researcher at Penn. Mm-hmm. Rena wing, my mentor and me, but we drafted very quickly some consensus criteria and he, we tried them out in a field trial.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then a second one, Mm -hmm. and started to collect data on this phenomenon. So now it becomes clear, especially after it was included as a provisional diagnosis in the DSM-IV, people started paying attention to it, all Mm -hmm. kinds of attention. Mm -hmm. And my own work Um, was right in there at the beginning, both in terms of the descriptive psychopathology, which I'll say a bit about, but also how do you treat these people? Right. You know, what do you do for them? Um, And let me talk just very briefly about the descriptive psychopathology. I went on to think, okay, did this occur in individuals of different races? different Mm -hmm. genders, Uh, back at that time, our genders were male and female, uh, but uh, different genders, different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I worked with a colleague to study the pattern of binge eating in the Cardia population of black and white individuals in Mm -hmm. the South and found that binge eating was as common among black women as among white women and Mm -hmm. was nearly as common among black men and Mm -hmm. white men, a little less common. But now we have a pattern of eating that we see in both minority uh, participants and males, different ages. I studied uh, whether binge eating occurred in middle-aged women. Mm -hmm. It does. And then with other colleagues in children, Mm -hmm. um, which quickly became a study of loss of control eating, Mm -hmm. because they didn't eat as much. And um, also in bariatric surgery participants. Mm -hmm. And everywhere we looked, binge eating was there. And it was associated with a pattern of distress and uh, associations with other kinds of psychopathology, particularly depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So now we go from having eating disorders existing in young, affluent Caucasian women to understanding or beginning to understand a process that is still evolving Mm -hmm. in
0: everybody. Right. And when you began to document the pattern of binge eating and this syndrome, did it move uh, completely or quickly or not completely into the field of eating disorders out of the world of obesity? Or does the study of binge eating disorder, what's the journey of the, the study of binge is, eating disorder? The Journey,
1: I think is an interesting one, um, but here's what happened to me. In the midst of all this, along a parallel course of development, I took over the eating disorders program at Western Psychiatric Hospital. huh. And that began uh, my journey in the eating disorders world. I had been living in the obesity world Mm-hmm. I joined the uh eating disorder world and I quickly met up with Terry Wilson and Chris Fairburn, who had developed a treatment for bulimia nervosa and wrote a, a, a chapter which people continue to cite on how to adapt cognitive behavior therapy uh, for people with obesity people
0: a, with obesity or people with binge eating disorder
1: i stand corrected people with binge eating disorders uh-huh. many if not most of whom were obese, obese. not everybody but uh, treatment seekers tended to be obese and right uh-huh. from the very beginning um body sizes were
0: larger than average mhm uh-huh. mhm uh-huh. so You move from obesity to eating disorders. You're running a clinic that is serving a range of individuals who have variety of eating disorders. You are starting to have students like Carlos uh, who are studying with you and then going on to expand the field. Were there particular hurdles that had to be overcome or was it pretty straightforward? I can remember
1: back in the day, people working in the field of obesity and people working in eating disorders were not comfortable bedfellows. Mm -hmm. Um, The received wisdom, which by the way, has a good deal of support, is that dieting provokes or precipitates often an eating disorder. And I Mm -hmm. think the data bear that out, Mm -hmm. um, that that is often, I remember the first time I heard Cindy Buick say this, that um, dieting, if genes loaded a gun, uh, the trigger was dieting. And for vulnerable individuals, I think that's true. But I did a study early on where I saw quite clearly that many people with obesity who started binge eating dieted only after they had binge eating, not Mm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was more than one pathway to -hmm. this kind of eating pattern. And that the kinds of things, whether they were a diathesis for mood problems, obesity itself, or eating problems, the aberrant eating often preceded attempts to diet, which Mm -hmm. then started a negative cycle. But there was always a bit of skepticism, maybe even some scoffing and hostility at the notion that binge eating might not be a consequence of dieting. Mm -hmm. And that dieting, of course, I'm sure you remember, when I started going, to eating disorders meeting, people wore badges that had a red slash across it that said, Stop dieting.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what
1: I had seen in my work in obesity is that when we treated people with a kind of moderate behavioral weight control program, um, their eating disorder symptoms decreased
0: dramatically. Right. So really, I, I remember this very well. Did you remember it? I was at Yale. You were a kid, yeah. And I and I was working. I was working with individuals with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, and as you say, it was gospel, right? That dieting was oh, a trigger, disorder. yeah, for an eating disorder, and when when the field started to recognize binge eating disorder, the idea that there could be some other precipitant and a different pathway and almost a reverse relationship between, you know, binge eating that the the dieting was triggered by the binge eating rather than the reverse was really mind blowing for a lot of people. There was a lot, I remember intense controversy around this, and writing a paper with Denise Wilfley around pathways to binge eating. So um, you've called it back to mind as we're discussing. Yeah. yeah, So has, where's the field now, as you observe it on this point?
1: This is how I see my work in the context of the overall fabric, our understanding of the distinctions among disorder and the role of various different factors um, is still evolving.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I think I mentioned to you in our preliminary discussions that we see it now in discussions about atypical anorexia nervosa, where, all right, do you really need to be underweight to have anorexia nervosa? How does low weight anorexia Nervosa differ, Mm
2: -hmm. if at
1: all, from developing all of the signs and symptoms of anorexia nervosa except for low weight.
0: Mm -hmm. And how are those groups different? How are those
1: groups different? What are the distinctions among disorders? We have a growing understanding of the phenomenology, what we don't know. And I think it's important for me to mention this in the course of a discussion of my own perspectives on on my career is that I participated in the working group uh, for the development of the DSM-5 led Mm -hmm. by your friend and colleague, Tim Walsh. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can remember this discussion coming up about what about atypical anorexia nervosa. And it was, here is what people today need to understand. It was never under consideration as to whether people with atypical anorexia were ill. Mm -hmm. I had taken care of patients like this These Mm -hmm. patients had serious illness. What we did not know was whether the course and outcome of these individuals was the same as those that were habitually underweight. And you know what? We still don't know it.
0: Right. It's still an outstanding question. It's a
1: question. Are they the same? or does course and outcome distinguish these disorders? But the way, the way the discussion has somehow evolved is we don't think these people are ill and they themselves say, no one thinks I have an eating disorder. Well, that was never the case, at least among the people that I knew working in the field of research. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has become an area of contention just as rather than um, resolve the controversy about obesity Mm -hmm. and whether or not it should be treated and what the implications are uh, of obesity for health are argued passionately. Mm -hmm. And this is in a very important context, uh, a very important question, but I think it's also very important to consider the context. There are people who believe that, well, they don't believe it, they know it. They know that... Being an individual at a larger than average body size is associated with significant stigma, mm-hmm. and we know because there are strong data to back it up that mm-hmm. stigma causes ill health. Hmm.
0: So let's underscore that, Marcia, because I think it's really such an important point that we have the data. It's not just a belief.
1: No, it is, is not right just there. a belief. We right. know, and, and I think I tried to signal this to you, you know, it goes back to my training as a social worker, Kathy.
2: Mm-hmm. I knew
1: all about the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. No one talked about it. Right. I never doubted it.
0: I think we talked about environmental factors.
1: But now we are (laughs) coming around again to understanding the profound effects of social determinants on our health at multiple levels. And I think we are also getting to understand the impact of stigma. Mm -hmm. individuals, and I, I often have used this with patients over the years, um, Mm -hmm. exist within a fairly broad range of in quotes, normal body weight Mm -hmm. that isn't associated with negative consequences. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: we know, for example, some races and ethnicity tend to develop medical consequences associated with central adiposity, for example, at lower weights, but by and large, there's a range of normal and normal eating is a range. But we also know if you get too far underweight, Mm -hmm. we know about the devastating consequences
2: Mm -hmm. of
1: significant underweight. Mm -hmm. It seems to me to defy logic, but certainly scientific reality that we don't understand when you go way above Mm -hmm. that range, there are also significant medical
0: consequences. Mm -hmm. You're saying we have those data.
1: We have those data. They Mm -hmm. are irrefutable. Mm -hmm. People will point out and they are quite correct. There are people who are a higher weight who are metabolically normal hmm there are also data that show that over time they often develop problems but even if they don't it isn't the average situation
2: right
1: we are not meant to carry a whole lot of excess adiposity mm-hmm. why we do population wise is an area of significant public health interest
2: mm-hmm.
1: to put it right. mildly and certainly not all people have aberrant eating but some mm-hmm. do
0: given your wealth of experience, if you can capture for us, why does the health at any size from this branded perspective concern you?
1: It concerns me, I think, that that as a concept, I don't care if you weigh 100, 200, or 300 pounds. Everyone should strive to moderate their food intake in a direction towards unrefined, unprocessed and healthy, and they should increase activity and be as healthy as they possibly can be. There's no problem there, but we also know that rates of type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease are skyrocketing and are associated with morbidity and mortality. Mm-hmm. And that mod- moderate weight loss that has been shown compellingly by the Diabetes Prevention Program and Look Ahead can be significantly, if not totally, mitigated by moderate weight loss. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about losing 100 pounds, we're talking about a 220 pound woman becoming a 180 pound woman. Uh, that would be associated for mo- with, in most people with significant improvements in fasting blood sugar and lipids and other cardiovascular risk factors.
0: So part of what I'm hearing from you, Marsha, is that you agree with the idea of health at any size that you sure. want people to be optimally healthy at whatever size they're
1: Absolutely. at. And, and I want them not to be the targets of mm-hmm. irrational hatred from mm-hmm. other people and from the healthcare professions. Mm-hmm. By the way, 40% of Americans are now have obesity. Right. So this is a normative con- condition.
0: Um, but you also are saying, and this is where you diverge from yes. the health at any size movement, let's say, is that actually achieving health for people who are at very high levels of weight and, can be, at risk. and are at significant health risk that if in fact you want to achieve optimal health, That one way to do that is to moderate one's intake and reduce one's weight, some measure, not dramatically. I I, I think that
1: I would avert that to be true.
0: Mm -hmm. You started out in the obesity field. Yeah. You moved into the eating disorders field and brought into the eating disorders field an expanded understanding of what disordered eating can look like. You I like to pioneer, think here, Right, you were a pioneer in describing this phenomenon of binge eating and, and then helping to define binge eating disorder. And now we have in the eating disorders community, this very intense debate that is going on it around is. obesity, health at any size, the role of dieting. These are, are very real live issues today. And w- yet we have some real science to inform the discussion. When you look ahead, as we think about the young, younger professionals, the, the individuals entering the field of eating disorders today, What are some of the questions that you have or some of the topic areas that you think we need to pay attention to, to potentially address this issue more fully or resolve some of this debate?
1: It's a big question. I'll say a couple of things. One is that young people need to be taught the difference between advocacy Mm -hmm. and science. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important um, to have vocal and activist uh, folks in the field who have lived experience, uh, who have seen the damage that weight stigma and beliefs about body size and appearance can victimize young women and also young men Mm -hmm. But I think that we risk conflating advocacy for what we know scientifically. And there's, I think that there has been some recognition, at least on the part of the Academy for Eating Disorders, that we have to get back to promoting scientific discourse and discussion and not uh, get reduced to um, polarized expressions of beliefs instead of being guided by the science. I think our whole society is in danger of that. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Actually, you're touching on a topic that is so critical, broadly speaking around education and science and knowledge, right? And we talk about, this post-truth world that we live in, how do we, in a responsible way, lean into science and what we know, and at the same time, recognize that what we know today based on science will continue it changes. to evolve. It right?
1: changes, it changes. Yeah, I think that is pro- that's an excellent way of stating the big picture questions. But mm-hmm. I think that the eating disorders field is at risk for tilting towards an anti-scientific
0: stance on a lot of this. And so for clinicians entering the field, researchers entering the field, one wish for them? You have to learn from the past,
1: before you really can move forward. Um, And so that I would say that part of what clinicians need is some perspective on how things have evolved. I'm not sure the way it is now where young people are hired into these treatment centers with little or no clinical training um, that it's really feasible for them to have that perspective. And I don't have an easy answer, um, but I do wonder if putting the profits into hedge funds is really a superior way to solve healthcare problems than it is putting them in hospitals, which have their own limitations.
0: Mm-hmm, Yeah. There's a lot of work to continue to be done. You have contributed so dramatically and significantly to the field. Well, that's
1: a kind and very complimentary statement, Kathy.
0: Well, it is absolutely true. And it's been such an education for me and a delight to talk with you today, Marcia. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm
1: always glad to talk to you.
0: Thanks.